This week's episode of The Clear Out was recorded on the 9th of May 2023 at home in Wicklow. And it is a largely Eurovision Song Contest inspired episode because the Eurovision Song Contest is on this week. And I can tell you now, Ireland have not qualified for the final for the uh, for the umpteenth time and I try to put that Ireland's success and now failure into uh, a context a historical cultural context um, and I, I explain why I think it's not it's it's not entirely it's not entirely inexplicable this long period of 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 let's not call it failure let's call it not success this long period of not success in the Eurovision Song Contest a contest that we once <laughs> you, you could almost say dominated um, but Ireland is a changed entity and. So I talk about that. I talk about specific memories of a couple of different songs. I talk about my relationship to a certain clothing material worn by certain winning members, not Irish, of the Eurovision Song Contest. I explain why the first ever Ireland uh, Irish winning entry represented something um, very specific Um and was a very specific response, consciously or not, to some very disturbing stuff that was happening in Ireland at that time. Uh, yeah, so that's that's mostly what this episode is about. It's about national identity, confidence, emerging confidence, national self-esteem, and what gives a country the outlet for that to happen. Um, and... I go a bit further afield with that theory. I look at Australia and its relationship to sport in that in a very similar context. And I conclude this week's episode with some very, very brief thoughts on the coronation of King Charles across the way. So, so yeah, that's what's coming up in this week's episode. I hope you enjoy what you hear. And I will see you around the corner for all kinds of everything. <laughs> all right, cheers. Ooh, not gonna change my mind. Leaving the dream behind. Hi, my name is Dara Clear, and you're listening to the Clear Out. You're very welcome. How are you? Check in with yourself there if you're not sure. You might not be sure. Often we have to check. Often we don't know unless something really obvious has just happened. Unless the signpost has just sent us spiralling downwards or upwards. So we might be grinning from ear to ear like an inane idiot and say, brilliant, <laughs> I'm brilliant. Or we might be tumbling into the pits of despond. You can use Despond, can't you, by itself like that? 
I just did. It might have been an appropriate word to use mere moments, mere moments before pressing record because I had the misfortune. I had the misfortune to watch Serbia's entry in this year's Eurovision Song Contest. It was performed by a group of middle-aged men described by the commentators as Serbia's answer to Monty Python. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> it's, a, it's, it's a funny thing, isn't it? Comedy. Comedy in other languages. Comedy in other cultures. It doesn't always translate. And this was a bunch of middle-aged men gurning their way through a tuneless song. Some of them in dresses, some with moustaches. By the end of the song, there was a shaven-headed man in a long leather coat holding two missiles. And apparently it's an anti-war song of some sort. So that gives them uh, a bit of gravitas beneath the gurning. There you go. That's that's the, the title of my memoir. Gravitas Beneath the Gurning. <laughs> that sound effect, if you don't know it, that's the sound of me gurning. I'll do it again. Um, I think originally gurners, did they remove their false teeth and reveal <laughs> and benefit from particularly elasticated mouth and gums and some of them were able to pull their lower lips over their noses maybe over their entire heads um we used to laugh a lot in acting school and gurning that was that was something you did not wish to be accused of if you were performing as we did in our little repertory training theater if you were accused of gurning I'm afraid, my friends, that was that was no mere euphemism. <laughs> that meant, <coughs> sorry, excuse me, that meant you were doing some truly, astonishingly bad acting. <laughs> oh dear, dear, oh dear, the Eurovision. Yeah, welcome to this really groovy party. Ah, sexy kittens going in and out of the tunnel of love, my friends. Hi, how are you? I'm so happy to be here. Europe is one big crazy family. Ah, you dig it. I can't want to wait for this amazing song contest. Yes, get with it, my groovy friends. Helter Skelter, Bono, yeah. That's the... Maybe that's a complete... Maybe I'm just maligning the Eurovision vibe. Last year, the Eurovision was awarded to Ukraine. I mean, I could say Ukraine won it with their entry, a song I've no memory of. Um, the Eurovision has always been very political. <laughs> it's always been very political. And it's fascinating. Like, my daughter is now at an age where she's very enthusiastic just about the, the spectacle the costumes, the dancing, the songs. And tonight it was the, the first heat and Ireland had a song in it performed by the not brilliantly named Wild Youth. I mean, it's it's not a band name that trips off the tongue, is it? Wild Youth. Although I remember years ago, 20 years ago maybe, a band came on the, the Dublin music scene and their name was Ham Sandwich. 
I thought, well, they're never going to last. But I think they're still going strong. <laughs> Ham sandwich. Best of luck, lads. Um, they're saying best of luck to you with your podcast that nobody listens to. <laughs> uh, yeah, Eurovision. Man. Anyway, yeah. So we were letting my daughter stay up to, to, to watch tonight's efforts for as long as uh, up until the Irish song and Croatia they were on after did I, did I say what did I say before did I say Serbia or Croatia I think it was Croatia oh yeah it was it was Croatia that's who it was that was where that, the, the, the Croatian Monty Python guys um, but yeah they came on after Ireland the Ireland song is actually not too bad there was a lot of non-singing in the earlier entries um, and many of those entries they, they fall into that kind of Euro Eurovision thing there's a particular type of as, uh, yeah aesthetic or artistic sensibility or lyrical sensibility where oftentimes non-English speaking uh, European countries will enter a song that I mean I don't know why they don't just go for Esperanto but it's always it's often a mix of their native tongue and some English. It might just be the chorus in English, or they might do the whole thing in a strangely um, accentless English. Um, although when people sing, many people when they sing, they don't they don't sing with their accent. More on that anon. Um, but something often does get lost in translation by trying to appeal. To the many, um, something distinctive gets lost. In any case, the Ireland song, which I think is called "We Are One," it, it actually wasn't too bad. Very poppy and anthemic. Um, but the the lead singer was a slightly puppy fattyish, puppy fattish young guy, wearing flared gold glitter jumpsuit and there's nothing wrong with that nothing wrong with that at all um except it does raise expectations you think look at this guy in his gold glitter suit is he going to do something funky is he going to do something a bit disco a bit retro is he going to do something wild and eye-catching is he going to demand our attention? Uh, no, the answer, sadly, was no. He's just going to mope about pretty normally. Um, and I couldn't help but think of someone like Freddie Mercury. Maybe even, maybe even the belled Elton John. Um, maybe even the, the you know, Gurner par excellence, Robbie Williams. Like, these are performers, they're performers and they'd wear you know they've worn all sorts of gear you know go back and look at the archives go down through the years check out the uh, the costume chops but check out the performance chops to go with the costumes check out the look at me energy um and a gold glitter jumpsuit it kind of needs that so that was a bit weird um you know, if you can't wear it, don't wear it. If you can't pull it off, don't wear it. It's not enough. 
it's not enough just to wear it and go now the, the, the glitter suit will do the work you got to bring it to life brother you've got to bring it to life and funnily enough I was working at a wedding last week uh, with my friend Leo how are you Leo if you're listening because um, Leo might actually be listening and it's an amazing thing there's nothing quite like a wedding I suppose I shouldn't say I want to tread carefully here so I'm not throwing an entire demographic under the bus I mean certain weddings of course I mean we're talking about celebrity weddings Hollywood weddings we're talking a high end of glam and you know beautiful people and the good life and all of that um and maybe certain other kinds of weddings we're talking about certain particular cultures castes religions uh whatever they might connote something very specific as well but if you're talking about your bog standard irish wedding which follows a very particular formula uh and i'm not talking about the the church ceremony i'm talking about when everyone comes back to the the hotel for the reception and the same beats are observed um that particular experience and particularly if it's you know a rural wedding there's nothing quite like that kind of wedding to uh to draw your attention to people who don't feel altogether comfortable in suits or waistcoats or trousers <laughs> or, or lace-up shoes um are indeed for, for you know for people who don't feel comfortable in in nice dresses um I mean, and that, that, what's the implication of that? That some people feel very comfortable in not nice dresses. But, but you know what I mean? You know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. And I feel bad because there is, there's, there's an expectation. You've got to put on the suit. You've got to put on the nice dress. You may even feel obliged to wear the hat. Um, you might even feel obliged to wear that extra bit of, you know, extra bit of frippery. Something to dandy yourself up. It might be the the socks that call attention to themselves it might be the pocket square um which is a fancy name for a folded up handkerchief stuck in your stuck in your shirt pocket or your suit pocket um it might be a pocket watch with a gold chain who knows who knows but yes it's a, it, it's a great leveler because a lot of people are clearly going please please just let me get to the stage of the evening where i can sit safely at a table with drink in front of me and i don't have to move until i'm ready to be carried home um or please let me get to the stage where it's acceptable to get really drunk so i no longer have to care about how self-conscious i feel in this ill-fitting dress this ill-fitting suit um yeah and of course, you know, naturally, it does. It also draws your eye to the people who, who do carry it off. Um, but sorry, that, that that came from the gold glitter suit and the lead singer of Wild Youth. Uh, maybe it does trip off the tongue um, because he did nothing. He did nothing with his costume, um, and he got off to a rather nervous start, even though he was miming or maybe he started off singing live and was then miming afterwards a lot of miming i don't think, i don't think that was the form back in the day and um yeah back in the day 
it was a major event. I'm not sure how major an event it is anymore, in spite of the eyeballs it attracts and the Europe-wide coverage. Indeed, the international coverage. Australia has quite a dedicated Eurovision following, I discovered, when living there. And indeed, Australia has had entries, official entries in the Eurovision. Because although many people believe or would understand from the name that it's a a Europe-wide song contest and entry or eligibility for entry um, depends on membership of the continent of Europe. That is not the case. It's actually organised by, is it the European Broadcasting Commission? I'm not even sure if I've got that right. But it's basically a television, a European television organisation. And Australia's beloved SBS TV station is a member of that commission and therefore eligible. I think that's how it works. Anyway, there you go. Um, But yeah, I was just casting my mind back. And I was younger, younger than my daughter Maeve when... Uh, I remember Ireland winning the Eurovision in 1980. I was only six and we won with what is still, I think, a great song called What's Another Year, sung by the very attractive young Irishman, Johnny Logan, who wore a white suit, I believe, and had a black shirt. And the song was written by the inimitable Shay Healy, the late Shay Healy, who, who only passed away a couple of years ago. I had the great pleasure of getting to know Shay quite well in uh, in more recent years. And I, I acted in a, a stage musical that he wrote. I spoke about this with my good friend, Gavin McCaffrey. Um, when I interviewed Gavin on the podcast, we were in a show called The Wiremen, which was Shay Healy's story of the rural electrification scheme uh, when electricity was brought to rural Ireland. And he set it up as a kind of a, Ah, sort of an Oklahoma uh, West Side Story cross. (laughs) Uh, You know, farmers and cowboys, uh, country people and city people, rival factions, love across the divide. Um, I actually thought it was a very sweet show. Um, Anyway, Shea Healy wrote this brilliant song, What's Another Year? And Johnny Logan sang it and won the 1980 Eurovision Song Contest. And I just thought this is brilliant. I thought it was a great, great song, a lovely song. You should look it up if you don't know it. I mean, if you're if you're Irish, you'll know it, of course. If you're a Eurovision fan, if you know, if you've been a Eurovision man all your life, you'll know that song. Um, more on that later too. Now the whole I've been a this kind of man all my life. Um, I remember thinking Johnny Logan. He first saw. He reminded me of. The Man from Atlantis. That would be one Patrick Duffy, also known as Bobby Ewing from Dallas. He had that sort of... Uh, now, I don't want to insult the man, but a kind of... Uh, what? What was that look? Was it a boy-next-door look? Kind of an American boy-next-door look. Because, I mean, in Ireland, the boy-next-door didn't necessarily look like Bobby Ewing. Far from it. In fact, some of the boys next door to where I grew up 
they looked um they would have looked more more in place in uh John Borman's deliverance um and they weren't the city boys sailing down the river they were the guys on the riverbank doing all sorts of evil to poor old Ned Beatty um let's not let's not go down that road let's not go down that road the um but yeah the 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 Eurovision to my mind as a kid like I was like this is this is the height of glamour um so if, if there was an alternative to to movies and hollywood and all that stuff that I, I was very much captivated by from a young age the eurovision felt it felt closer of course because it was in europe and uh, we won it in 1980 the english the english <laughs> they won it the following year with bucks fizz the act the song making your mind up and i thought that's a good song and Bucks Fizz they seem pretty they seem good looking they're all they're all blonde if I recall correctly and they had velvet jumpers <laughs> so that was immediately these guys are these guys are good because I've, I've I've had a lifelong now if I say fetish you'll get the wrong idea entirely um attraction <laughs> Attra- <laughs> excuse me attraction to fondness for velvet uh sorry excuse me is that is that velvet you're wearing would you mind if i touched you um velvet i had i mean i i I should i don't know should i say to my shame to my regret to my embarrassment when i was old enough to know better i had in my possession bought with my own money not gifted to me not foisted upon me but sought out and purchased a large, <laughs> a large velvet hoodie, um, and it was it was a hoodie of many colors, large patches, even even patches, not like not a mishmash tie dye vibe, but large squares of different colors of lovely lovely velvet i mean i can yeah i can feel it it's it's amazing when you have something you like like that you can kind of you tactically go there you've got this tactile memory uh, like a sense memory of it i don't know how long i held on to that for i didn't hold on to it for that long and i was ooh, 19 19 um loved it i had a velvet had a, I, have i spoken about the velvet l maybe i have maybe i haven't i think i have i feel like i have or maybe it's just a maybe, maybe it's just an anecdote a memory i've shared with others in real life but the the mother of one of my good friends uh will harry will if you're listening and you might be listening like leo i might be listener a sometime listener anyway will's mother made me a little brown velvet cushion and put a little owl face on it and that was my beloved little companion when i wasn't hanging out with ernie from sesame street i had a little ernie doll doll i suppose i suppose you'd have to call him an ernie doll an ernie he wasn't a figurine (laughs) this is like referring to comics as graphic novels as i did last week you try to take it away from what it is so it sounds less kiddie, less juvenile. 
Anyway, I had an Ernie. My brother Oshin had a Bert. I thought, hard luck, you missed out there. You got the you got the, the grumpy, cranky, joyless one. Kind of suited my brother's personality at the time. Um, but yeah, when I wasn't cuddling Ernie or playing with my Star Wars figures, I had this little velvet cushion, chocolate brown, and I used to just work a corner of it. So I'd work the material out of the corner. So I just had the, the velvet between my fingers and then I'd hold that and suck my thumb at the same time. My God, what a memory. Great memories. Um, and one time, my older brother, who was sleeping in the upstairs upstairs bunk above me, was sick and threw up over the side of the bed and puked all over my velvet owl. Wasn't so nice after that. Um, I can't even remember if that owl was put through a washing machine or if it was just, you know, quickly uh, wiped off with a J-cloth. But, um, yeah, the puke, I remember that as well. Um, So, anyway, back to Eurovision. So, Ireland, we had this ridiculous um, period of success where we won the Eurovision three times in a row. 92, 93 and 94, I believe. Um, Johnny Logan won again with a song, I think in 87. Uh, You can go and look all this up. You'll find the list of Eurovision winners. Johnny Logan won twice as the performing artist. He also wrote a song uh, for another singer, which won, um, Linda Martin's Why Me. Um, So he's, he's like a triple Eurovision winner. It's pretty extraordinary, no? And my wife heard him sing somewhere recently, or saw him sing, maybe it was on TV, and said he's, he's still sounding very good. So fair play to you, Johnny. I think he did well in Germany. Uh, him and David Hasselhoff riding <laughs> riding their way to the top of the charts. Huh? Smiley, you know, smiley, nice boys. The boys next door. They should have teamed up. They, they could have done quite well. Um, now, before... Before Johnny Logan's success in 1980, Ireland had won the Eurovision for the first time in 1970 when Dana, Dana, you get these artists that have a single name, Dana, she won with a song called All Kinds of Everything. And Dana was this very sweet, innocent, dairy schoolgirl. She was only 18 and she won with that. Um... And of course, I wasn't born then, but I, I was aware of Dana uh, as part of sort of Eurovision lore. And in later life, Dana uh, went on to be a member of European Parliament um, for five or six years, I think. And she was, was, and I presume remains, a very devout Christian woman. She was, you know, pro-life. Um, and I, I mean, I don't know. I, I never had any issue with Dana. I just thought, yep. There's Dana. She won the Eurovision. She's always come across as very sort of, you know, traditional values, wholesome, straightforward. Um, And interestingly enough, if you think 1970, I mean, we're talking, wow. I mean, that's not quite the height of the troubles in Northern Ireland. But getting there, I suppose, um, a very hot time conflict-wise in Northern Ireland and that song all kinds of everything encapsulates 
in a way the coping mechanism of being up there amongst all the the hell that the troubles brought to the communities of northern ireland and and Dana, you know she was from derry which was very very centrally involved in a lot of the uh the you know the conflict incidents um of of the the, the troubles in northern ireland um and I would have always thought over the years that there was something in the in the sort of let me see now how am I going to phrase this so as not to uh, so so as to offend as few people as possible um, in the sort of entertainment industry or in the entertainment offerings like the mainstream entertainment offerings coming out of Northern Ireland, maybe, you know, TV, music, like Dana's, all kinds of everything. It was incredibly safe and apolitical. Um, you could go so far as to say anodyne. And all kinds of everything is just a sort of a very sweet, I mean, really 60s-ish kind of love song, syrupy and yeah singularly without edge and why you know why should it have why should it have any edge but to me i make that connection between you know wanting to create something that was sort of an antidote to the the, you know the, the really dark dark blood feuds and um paramilitary tit for tat violence that was escalating um as well as the 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 horrible perversion of collusion um between british authorities and the royal ulster constabulary and what they were doing to collude with uh unionist paramilitaries loyalist paramilitaries in in their attempts to to quash the ira or to retaliate really vicious vicious nasty nasty stuff um blood chilling stuff um yeah so dana to my mind sort of epitomized the sort of you know the the, the kind of the, the jazz hands the kind of distracting look at me look oh look 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 at this ah no don't look over there at all the horrible dark stuff look at this we're also capable of this being completely inoffensive and sweet um yeah so it's you know so in that regard even um you could describe the eurovision as being um political but um to jump back then to 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 move on to later on in the eurovision years it's really interesting i think well i think it's very interesting um you know if you think I refer to Bucks Fizz winning in 1981, um, making your mind up. Now, I don't know how that registered in in England, in, in the UK. I've no idea how much acclaim Bucks Fizz were given. I don't know what the cultural resonance of that success was. Um, because England was... You know, England wasn't yet reckoning with itself. It wasn't yet. Well, to my memory, it wasn't. You know how I think. How I how I think back to that time. Um, 
or how I contextualize that time, even though England had a lot of other stuff going on domestically, particularly I think the rise of Thatcherism, her attempt to smash unions, the coal miner strikes, all that kind of stuff. England and the United Kingdom as, as, as entities, they weren't really reckoning with themselves. They weren't really reckoning with the end of empire, um, even though that was coming and has, has play, is playing out really. I think like the, the end game of empire is playing out now and has resulted in things like Brexit and the kind of horrendous um, revisionist sentimental twisted nostalgia of, of of many members of the the Tory party in England the um, the utter denial um, of the modern political and economic and social landscape they really are dinosaurs relics um, but at that time in 1981 when Bucks Fizz won the Eurovision it was probably just like yeah sure of course you know we're great <laughs> <laughs> of course we won sure the Paddies won last year but like when Johnny Logan won I think that was of enormous import in Ireland enormous cultural significance just as when Diana won it would have been as well um, and I think there would have been I mean it, you know Ireland's a very small place obviously but I think they would have been viewed differently and if you're you know like I was from the uh, you know the neighbouring county to Dublin um, you know Johnny Logan Shay Healy these are Dublin guys it felt more local to us down this neck of the woods when Johnny Logan won than when Dana won even though Dana represented a very lovely side of Irish identity um, you know when she won 10 years previously um, and when I think Johnny Logan won again in 1987 with Hold Me Now and again, it's like, oh my God, I can't believe it. Johnny Logan's won again. So what age was I then? 13, grand. 1992. Who won in 1992? Was that Neve Kavanagh? <laughs> and then there was um, Paul Harrington and Charlie... Do I, want, do I want to say Charlie McGettigan? Is that right? With Rock and Roll Kids, great song as well. In Your Eyes with Neve Kavanagh was a great song. What was the third in those that three in a row? But... It was the point I'm trying to get to here is when you don't have a huge amount else to cheer for, when your sense of national pride is really tied up in things that are are maybe very local or maybe somewhat invisible on an international stage. Um, when you have a success like the Eurovision coming out of years of um, you know economic struggle years of you know I suppose in, you know if you're talking about 80 87 you're talking about you know years of a recession um, and I suppose, for us anyway, like in Ireland, like years of this this kind of sense of profound insecurity beside the the greater the greater state, the big nation across the Irish Sea, the historic occupier, oppressor, colonist, colonizing force, 
the tutting, patronizing, dismissive. Um, I mean, I was going to use the word sibling, but that 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 feels too complimentary. <laughs> Overlord. Um, yeah, really, really. Like the 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 uphill struggle that it was, I think, for Ireland to emerge from the yoke of of colonialism, to emerge out of the the shame of of being occupied, of having our our culture negated by English not just English occupancy but English policy um, and then to be just this emergent um, modern nation uh, I, I'll put modern in inverted commas there um, modern only by virtue of the fact of being a 20th century nation um, having officially been granted its full sovereign independence in in what date i i mean i i should have looked this up but it was like is it was it the 1930s um when there was a, the final official handover so you're talking what 1970 winning the eurovision that's only 30 years that ireland had been independent and you know let's be clear dana as a dairy native was part of northern ireland like um partitioned northern ireland and you know for, for for you know if you were of a loyalist persuasion or you know wanted to view her as being part of the united kingdom um i have never had any sense that that was her own personal allegiance but i suppose you could argue well she wasn't in the republic um you know th- these were moments to go come on we're here we're putting ourselves on the stage on an international stage uh and the eurovision definitely was a, a significant vehicle for that um now by the time 1987 and the early 90s victories came around you had artists like um you too obviously achieving huge international success um Sinead o'connor had broken through at that stage as well um I mean, other other artists. They'd be too, they, to my mind, they'd be two very obvious ones who had achieved international, like high profile, front of you know front cover of international magazines success. Um, having someone like Bob Geldof of the Boomtown Rats being the the driving force behind Live Aid, uh, that was a source of pride to us as well um so like our our artistic voice our musicians our performers were making themselves known and through them making ireland known making ireland uh, uh if not a force to be reckoned with a force to be recognized um and having success in movies with films like um my left foot and the field and a bit later in the name of the father um with memorable uh performances from daniel day lewis in a couple of those and richard harris in the field um and again receiving that 
recognition, that international acclaim. These were big moments. Now, and I'm not just saying that as someone who was into movies, and I would have been more into movies than I was into music. Um, and I suppose like my daughter, I was into the spectacle of the Eurovision. Um, and in a way, it's funny, I think it was in the 1994 Eurovision um, when Bill Whelan um, brought out Riverdance as the, the the interval entertainment in the Eurovision Song Contest that year. And to many people in Ireland, you know, it, that was a big deal. That was a big moment where we hadn't seen this before. And um, the producers of, of Riverdance, um, I've just gone blank on, on his name, John... John, is it John McColgan and Moya Doherty? They were the producers of Riverdance. And this was this amazing sort of high energy, high octane, modernized version of ensemble Irish dancing um, that, <laughs> you know, depending on your perspective, unleashed Michael Flatley on the world. Um and and Jean Butler, they were the two soloist dancers. I mean, I can remember that. So that was ninety four. So I was only I was twenty. We were still a nation that was emerging into a into a sort of nascent confidence where we could stand up on our own two feet and not only understand ourselves uh, in, in comparison to or in contrast to the English, the old enemy, who were only beginning then finally to go, like the bullied kid, we are good enough. We can do things by ourselves, for ourselves. We, does, we are, we're worthy of recognition our achievements are worthy of recognition we can make our own statements we can make our own claims to to fame our own claims to the right to an audience with the world and not just via England or this this lengthy and punishing history with our nearest neighbours. Um, and we can take this language that was forced upon us and achieve great things with us. If you think of Irish writers and, and poets and, yes, songwriters and, yes, actors. Um, and I think that 1994 performance, like this sort of inaugural performance of Riverdance when no one had seen it. I mean, now it's become a cliche and has had, you know, countless um, satires and spoofs aimed at it. Um, but it was something that hadn't been seen before at that time. And it was arresting. Um, and I would cite that as a massively significant moment. Um, I mean, you might throw into the mix as well 
1990 and 1994 World Cup experiences where Ireland had unprecedented success with its national football team at the World Cup um, particularly in 1990 when we got to the, the, the quarterfinals um, and less so the following time when we just got to the knockout stages but you know, all it reminds you of or what it reminds me of is how much more innocent we were we were still, you know, even by the mid nineties, you know, we were still very much tethered to, to, to. Uh, I, should, I don't know if tethered is the right way to describe it, but we were we hadn't really shaken off aesthetically um, or energetically the 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 Ireland that had produced us. Um, I mean, maybe, maybe, maybe that's a that's a very obvious thing to say. I mean, maybe that's just self evident that you know, no, no country, <laughs> no country is ever truly successful in 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 shedding, um, you know, what produced it, shedding what gave birth to it. Um, but it's funny. I was talking to someone today, and he's got members of his family. Um, of his partner's family who are gay and they've adopted twins I can't remember if the twins are girls or boys but anyway they're having the twins christened in the local Catholic church and you just thought well like if anything encapsulates the 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 the, the, the progressive social colour the progressive social dynamic um, the progressive changing landscape of modern Ireland um, I think that does a gay couple with adopted twin children being christened in um, a small town Catholic church I mean that would have been unheard of unheard of in I mean, it was only two episodes ago I was talking about the, the, the you know, the, the Kerry Babies case um, and, uh, you know, the, the case from, 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 from Longford as well, from 1984. Um, I mean, you, you know, things wouldn't have been that much different in the early 90s. But we have come a very long way. Now, you know, by the way, there are plenty of things that are really not working at all in Ireland um, and would infuriate, would infuriate you to to look at the the incompetence and the lack of vision and the lack of planning um, and just the profound brokenness of some of the most important social structures and systems and institutions in this country. And it's simply not good enough. Um, and we're, you know, ultimately as, as, a, as a people, and, and I, I generally try to avoid these kinds of generalizations because they're not entirely reliable, but it does feel sometimes like, these institutions and successive governments they they capitalize and profit 
on on the backs of the the meekness of the Irish people that were simply still not not good enough at protesting, not good enough at complaining, not good enough at holding the powers that be to account to a sufficient extent where they should be in fear of their political lives. The institutions should be in fear of their right to continue existing when they continue to fail so many people so frequently. Um, so sadly, that is, that's still part of, you know, ultimately it is still part of the, the, the colonial hangover. Um, but to, to, to bring this back to the Eurovision, I mean, the, the, the central point I was trying to make there is it's it's a sign of having very few areas to feel proud of when winning a song competition can elevate the the confidence index the national confidence index so significantly and I remember when I was in Australia and I used to talk to international students in, in you know when I was teaching English as a second language and teaching international adult students and we'd talk about Australian culture and I'd talk to them about the Australian relationship with sport and the sort of fanaticism and the centrality of sport in the Australian, I shouldn't say the Australian psyche because I knew quite a few Australians who weren't into sport, but the centrality of sport in Australian culture, like white Australian culture, we're not talking about indigenous culture. Um, And the way I, I could only view that through a colonial lens. I could only view that through this idea that Australians at a certain point in their history discovered that they were really good at sport Um, and in particular they were very good at cricket and what that did for Australians was it gave them an opportunity to show the English that they deserved respect because even though Australia was established as a sort of an outpost of the empire, of the British Empire. Um, the, you know, the Australians, the white Australians who settled there were looked down upon um, by the English, you know, back in, back in the mother country, uh, back in the old country, which is such a classic expat term the white Australians were patronised and scoffed at and dismissed very much the way, you know, I think the Irish would have been by the English. Um, and they were sort of the, the you know, the, the unloved cousin, the condescended to distant relative, the barely tolerated outer members of the family. And 
if you're if you're an Australian and you're going, but no, but I, I, you know, we're here for the Queen, or we're here for the Crown. Now, of course, there were Irish people out in Australia as well, famously people like Ned Kelly, um, who felt a bit differently about all of that. Um, but broadly speaking, there was an allegiance to the Empire, and there was a sense of 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 duty and establishing something that was going to be acknowledged acknowledged and um appreciated um by by england by the united kingdom by great britain um and that simply wasn't the case um and what the australians found was on the field of play the field of sport was they could basically kick some english ass and go give us some respect give us the credit we deserve take us seriously now it's maybe that's a bit of a that's a bit of a a counter narrative or it's an alternative narrative i i came across quite a few times the idea that the australian identity was birthed in the the world war one conflict when Australians and uh, New Zealanders, white New Zealanders, European New Zealanders, European Australians, went and fought for fought for Queen and country, but then country was Australia, country was New Zealand, um, and that was the Australian New Zealand Army Corps, the ANZACs, and huge sacrifices were made, and that is one narrative that you will hear in australia that that's when the idea of mateship was born born in the trenches born fighting the turks in suvla bay um i mean that particular area of conflict in the first world war gave us the 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 wonderful anti-war song and the band played waltzing matilda one of my all-time favorites um such you know bitter sweet um haunting lyrics to capture the the futility of of war um but in any case my perception was sport was hugely important to lots of australians because they weren't making a name for themselves in other areas they were this bizarrely located western european state out on the fringes of asia um so they were sort of they were always anachronistic um and somehow that that sense of being anachronistic was encapsulated by the by the 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 fauna of australia when they you know you know creatures like kangaroos and and wallabies and bilbies um and platypus platypuses were revealed and shared these bizarrely composed unique animals um even koala bears for that matter um that hadn't been seen anywhere else uh and so you know in, in a way those animals were another reason to kind of go that's a very strange little place with with these strange former citizens of europe um and so 
I talk to international students and go, you know, it's a source of enormous pride. It was a source of enormous pride that the Australians could field a team of cricketers that could not only hold their own, but could utterly dominate and humiliate the palms, as they like to call them, uh, the English. And, I mean, what, what does any culture do when it, it realises this is something we're good at? This is something where we gain recognition. This is something that feeds into our national psyche, into our sense of confidence, into our sense of self-worth as a nation. Well, they lean into it, obviously. They lean into it and continue. And this is true to this day. Continue, like Australia continues to produce highly competitive athletes, men and women across so many different sporting codes. Um, It's absolutely extraordinary, but it doesn't come from nowhere. And if in Ireland it's not unusual to bump into people in many different walks of life who also happen to play music or write songs or, you know, have quiet aspirations to write books, write poems or do that in their own time. It's it's because that's part of our heritage. The, you know, the land of the land of saints and, and scholars, the land of multiple Eurovision song contest winners. <laughs> as well as our own rich traditional music heritage. Um, but we recognised this is something we're good at. We're good storytellers. We're good at taking a language we were given, a language we didn't necessarily want, and making it our own. We're good at investing this, this language of a language of power, a language of subjugation, a language of denial, a language of repression, suppression, oppression. We're going to take this language and make it our own. We're going to take this language and invest it with its own color, its own flavor, its own agency. So you, the occupiers, don't really understand us, even though apparently we're speaking the same language and that is something that i think irish people have taken enormous pride in to go okay so you don't want us to speak our own language and many of us can't many of us can't speak our own language i am hoping at some point (laughs) i've got this list of you know would-be guests on the podcast if i can just organize myself for god's sake what excuse do i have if I can just organize myself to either master the relevant technology to do capture an online interview or just persuade someone to travel to my little abode here and hashtag blessed in, in, in this particular, particularly lovely corner of Wicklow. But there is, there's, a, there's an Irish language advocate working his magic on, on social media pages and in the flesh. And I only know him by his Instagram name, which is, it is, what is it? Oh my goodness. I know it's Connor. Connor, I want to say Connor Slee Rua. Um, I might have to, to double check that. But he throws up these great, uh, you know, bits of ongoing kind of Irish language advocacy, cultural tidbits. 
um, and just lovely little expressions and phrases from Irish with a, a translation um, and throws up bits of Irish history uh, to contextualize the, the shaping of our relationship with Gaelga, um, the Irish language. Um, and like I'm, I'm having a battle with my daughter at the moment to kind of because she's saying, oh, I don't like Irish. It's boring uh, because, again, if you're not Irish here in Ireland, many of us just refer to the Irish language simply as Irish not Gaelic um, when we re- when we use a form of that word Gaelic we usually usually use the Irish language word for Irish which is Gaelga um, on will Gaelga I got do you have any Irish Neil ain Gaelga come I don't have any Irish so I have a tiny bit not anywhere near as much as I like as I would like to have but um yeah, this guy, it is Connor Sleeroo, I'm sure that's it. Um, and would you believe he's over in West Wicklow? So really, there's no excuse. I need to get him on because uh, he is walking the walk and organising little get-togethers, Osgoelga, and generally seems to be a force for good. But, um, but yeah, so that is... Um, that's kind of like my, my cultural commentary born of catching a few Eurovision songs tonight. And f- as I say, my my perception is that 1994, the Riverdance, the famous Riverdance interval show um, at that year's Eurovision Song Contest, which was in Dublin, I believe, that year. Um, I think that was a turning point. I think that was a turning point. And sure enough, really the you know the 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 seeds of the celtic tiger were already planted at that stage investment was coming in the 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 tech age was coming and coming fast um and as we emerged into that celtic tiger era which to my mind was an era of you know unmitigated <laughs> greed and overconfidence and ugly um you know insatiable consumption uh the, the way i've always thought of it was again and you, you you put these things into a historical context of an emerging national identity you know if we had just started to feel we are good enough we don't need those english we are good enough. We can do our own thing. And then suddenly we became very quickly um, one of the richest economies in Europe. And we went absolutely mental and just couldn't <laughs> consume fast enough and had banks throwing money at us. And when I say us, I mean everyone else, not me. Because <laughs> I where was I? I went off to England. I did my acting training. I came back in nineteen ninety-nine and was kind of horrified by what I was seeing. This was the new Ireland and I was like, oh my God, what is going on? Who are we? Um and then there was a recession and then there's been another kind of a boom time and now apparently there's a recession a recession coming again. And you wonder, are we going to learn? Did we learn anything from the pandemic? 
is relentless consumption, relentless capitalism, is it the model that's going to serve us sustainably into the future? Is it going to make us well or is it going to crush and destroy us and tear us apart? I, I, I can't help but feel it's the latter, not the former. Um, and ask yourself how many Eurovision Song Contests we've won and how many decent bloody songs have we entered to the Eurovision since 1994? I think we won it again in 97. I don't know that song at all. It's called, is it called The Voice? By Eimear Quinn, who is, she was a, as as I am, a Maynooth University alumnus. Um, I think I'm right in saying that. Uh, I don't know that song, but it won. I think that was 97. So, I mean, that's, what is that? 20 26 years ago there's a connection there's a connection um and maybe you go well that's good isn't it does that mean we've done very well in other areas if we're no longer producing great songs if we no longer have world conquering musicians and bands and writers I think we still do have a lot of good people out there doing good stuff, but maybe it gets less press. It's become a bit more commonplace, which is also a sign of evolution. Um, the the national soccer team, alas, uh, aren't doing especially well. Well, maybe we've turned a corner. Maybe we've, we're we're consolidating into something a bit better. Um, it did it did seem that way uh, with their 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 most recent performance. The girls, the women, the Irish women. The Irish women's soccer team, they'll be performing in the World Cup. Performing, playing, participating? Jesus. They'll be at the World Cup this summer. I'm looking forward to that. I really like how they were putting themselves about. Um, yeah, I, I don't know what else I have to add here. The um, It's funny. I Last week... I didn't. I, I couldn't go. I couldn't go near last week's episode. I was so unwell when I recorded it, and I felt, I felt sort of. <laughs> I feel ashamed. I felt ashamed. I felt it was such a. Oh, I, I didn't think it was a good episode at all. I did no social media for it really. And I remember leading up to that episode before I was feeling as bad as I felt. I thought, oh, you know, the coronation is on in England this weekend, as in last weekend. Uh, of King Charles. And I remember I was going to draw a connection to the, you know, the the coronation at the end of Star Wars. The bestowing of the honours, the awards on our plucky heroes. And how, as a kid, I was very, I was very moved by that. I thought, this is great. This is lovely. Look at them all. They're out of the war zone. They won the, they won the war. Um, they're all lovely people. They're all smiling. And, and here's the droids and they're all shiny. And it's great. And everyone's delighted. And there they are getting their medals. And Princess Leia's flirting with the boys and who knows what's on her mind um and i remember thinking this is just the best like not only are they kicking ass and fighting um stormtroopers and tie fighters and defeating darth vader and wielding lightsabers and blowing up death stars and chopping off people's arms in weird alien bars but they also get to put on their nice clothes and go to a special event <laughs> And I was going to draw some sort of connection between that and last week's, uh, last weekend's coronation of of, of King Charles. Um, and yeah, I mean, I didn't, 
just a just a quick word on 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 the coronation um it obviously got a huge amount of media attention um it must have got some media a media attention here i didn't watch any of it i did uh, of course see some coverage uh, coverage i saw papers newspapers i'm walking on photos of the coronation um where i was working at the last couple of days um i heard about one of the tory uh higher ups penny mordant who um seemed to emerge with enormous credit for being able to hold a, hold a sword upright for a prolonged period of time throughout the ceremony um apparently the weather was really bad so it was all a bit of a damp squib although it cost an enormous amount of money but i don't know it just feels like is is, is that what people want at this time like england just seems to be falling apart it seems to be tearing itself apart like brexit has been an absolute unequivocal disaster uh and they just seem to be all over the place um and then the queen dies um which of course is literally the end of an era for for you know for so many people and particularly people who um have their identity bound up in that um that entity that institution the royal family but the royal family is falling apart and now they've just made this sort of I don't know, Charles. I mean, I'm sure I've spoken about him before. Maybe when I spoke about the death of the Queen, but he's always just struck me as being sort of benignly incompetent. Um, this kind of slightly bumbling, oafish, dull, ineffectual man. Um, is that harsh? <laughs> I mean, best of luck to him. The most animated I've seen him is uh, a couple of months ago wasn't he getting very irritated because a fountain pen was given to him or a fountain pen he had wasn't working properly when he had to sign something and he got very irate um i mean that's yeah that's the most animated i've seen him maybe uh in the entirety of my life <laughs> old man shakes pen in futile rage um yeah, I mean, there was a funny thing I saw thrown up online about comparing the royal family to having a neighbour who loves clowns and likes to dress up as a clown and puts clown dolls in their windows and has their house covered in clown paraphernalia and is endlessly, incessantly interested in all clown-related news items and just wants to talk about clowns. Um, and then in Ireland's case, it's having a neighbour who has all those fascinations and behaviours, but also your grandfather was murdered by a clown. Um, yeah, so I, I thought that encapsulated something very funny but very true about how many Irish people would regard the royal family. I'm I'm very against this idea of of um of humanizing the royals. <laughs> I'm very against this idea of making them warm and cuddly and treating them just as any other celebrities. Um I know there's a an implied impotency with that that they're no longer 
what they once were. Um, I mean, I welcome that aspect of it, but don't just don't forget. Don't don't you know? Don't forget the history. Don't forget what it actually represents. Um, don't forget the fundamental injustice of having a royal family. The the sort of economic insanity and illogicality of having a royal family uh, and indulging them. That's all they are. They're just this grotesque national indulgence. Um, yeah, so I would have been far more moved by the, the coronation. I know coronation is a bit of a misnomer for that final scene of 1977 Star Wars. But uh, even still, I'd enjoy that more than watching that gaudy ridiculous spectacle i know people talk about oh the pageantry i mean yeah i mean again you're just heaping honor on these people but then if that's all you've got see this is the thing this is what it comes back to if that's all you've got if that's if that's what your identity is bound up in um you have to persevere and I'm going to finish with this in today to, on today's episode. I've had the radio on the last couple of days. And one of the biggest stories dominating the Irish airwaves this week. Wait for it. Brace yourselves. You might want to sit down. One of the biggest controversies that has the phones ringing off the hook. I mean, that, 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 that uh, doesn't actually work anymore, does it? Because uh, there are no phones on the hook anymore. But anyway, the phones have been ringing off the hook. The switchboards have been jammed. People have been going mad because the GAA, that's the Gaelic Athletic Association, the, the organising body responsible for Irish indigenous sports, that would be Gaelic football, hurling, camogie, I think handball. Irish handball falls into that category as well. Anyway, the um, the summer in uh, in Ireland, May to September, is sort of championship season, the knockout competition for the you know all the the county teams for their respective sports in Ireland, and um, the GAA have just launched an app that used to be only available to international viewers, but they've launched it in Ireland, so you can watch more GAA but they're charging people for it and people are going bananas going all those games should be free to air on television hurling's the greatest sport in the world um, and it's just been to me very amusing and, and sometimes quite moving and quite I mean I found myself sort of admiring some of these individuals but the essence of, of uh, and it hasn't all been men, but it's mostly been men. But and the and the essence, the, you know, the, the kind of the thrust of how a lot of these guys identify themselves is, I'm a GAA man. I'm a GAA man, and I've been attending matches since 1972, and that is the monster final between Cork and Tipperary. And I can tell you that was a great game, and I've been attending matches. For 50 years and it's an absolute disgrace what the GA have done and they're a great organisation and fair play to them but this is just wrong it's just wrong it's not right it's wrong and you get a lot of that I'm a GAA man so I suppose with fans of the royal family 
you get that as well. I'm a, I'm a Prince Charles man. I've always been Prince Charles man. And I've been attending coronations since 1623. Um, yeah, again, your passions and your identity. For some people, your passions, your obsessions are central. They're central to your identity. Um, I'm always wary of that. I'm always a bit wary of that. I think there can be... Your identity can get subsumed or displaced. Um, in some cases, not all. I mean, it, it, but there's something in there. And don't get me wrong. I mean, people... And, and, and that's, that's the other thing about like sports organisations in particular. The amount of people who volunteer and give so much of their time. And in that sense, they really are like lifelong fans, lifelong devotees. Um, I mean, it, it, and it's a form of religion then, isn't it? Like they're at the shrine, they're at the altar, they're the, the, the acolytes. They may as well be shaving their heads, wearing gowns, and making offerings. But a lot of these people, in in other ways, in, in ways that symbolise the same thing, they've done that. I mean, a lot of sports clubs, they thrive and survive on the goodwill of individuals like that. And then when money comes in, yeah, things can, things can, you know, the pitch can be queered, can't it? If you'll forgive the expression. Um, and particularly an organisation like the GAA where the players do not get paid. So it's an extraordinary organisation in that regard. Um, yeah, in any way. Okay, look, there's no real... There's no real conclusion to that. Are you a GA man? Mary? <laughs> ah, it's great though. God, there's such love, such love of the sport, love of the culture. I mean, that is, that is, that's strong stuff. That's strong stuff. They, those boys didn't need no Eurovision win to know what mattered. They didn't need to hear Johnny Logan sing What's Another Year. Huh? Huh? All kinds of everything. Forget about it. Give me that slitter. All right, lads and lassies. Um, thanks for listening. This has been the Eurovision episode, I suppose. Eurovision, coronations, national identity, national pride, um, Celtic Tiger, excess. It's all been in the mix. Um, and Velvet. Oh, sweet jumping Jesus. Don't forget the Velvet. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard. I will be back next week with something else. Uh, you can reach out to me on social media, share the love, comment. Um, all the obvious platforms are there. Email me at theclearoutlive at gmail.com. Support me on the supporter link for a one-off donation. Or you can become a patron, a regular benefactor of this independent creation this independent endeavour, this free-form waffle cast. I would welcome whatever you can give. But otherwise, comment, share, like, subscribe, rate. I think ratings help, so rate it wherever you're listening. And I'll catch you again next week. I hope you got, I hope you got a laugh out of this. I hope it made you think. I hope it gave you a chuckle. I hope it has you reaching for the Eurovision archives. Because that's, um, yeah, there's some good songs there. At least six out of those seven Ireland wins. Bloody good songs. Well worth checking out. All right. 
Mind yourselves. Take care. And I'll talk to you real soon. All the best. Bye.